Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. For over 40 years now, Bob and Gracie Eckblad have been ministering to those on the margins, the politically and economically oppressed and impoverished in Honduras, and migrant farm workers, gang members, and prison inmates in the United States. Not only have Bob and Gracie sought to bring people on the margins into the liberating and healing experience of God, but also to change and transform the life situations of those on the margins. Bob and Gracie's efforts have been innovative and powerfully effective. Bob is here to share with us his journey, experiences, and wisdoms in ways that both encourage and enable us to join him and the type of work that he does. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for being with me today. So let's, let's begin uh, with uh, the fact that in, in most of your books, the, you, you talk about your spiritual journey, but you usually begin uh, by going to a kibbutz uh, and learning to read Torah from there. Uh, but what led up to that, of uh, the decision to kind of go to a kibbutz? I mean, I... I grew up in an, I guess, God and country sort of like evangelical Republican um, environment, family, and church, and uh, went through private Christian school and then hit, you know, adolescence and um, had a big experience of kind of rejection, I guess, from the church and and then embraced by the kind of the people who were the druggies and the the bad, the bad guys or whatever, the, the people who were, it was like, uh, you know, early seventies, I guess when that was happening. So it was, uh, you know, the, during all the Vietnam war protests and, and, you know, the time when LSD and all that was kind of hitting the scene. And anyway, so I got involved in, uh, of that kind of thing, but mainly just climbing. I, I got involved in, uh, doing this extreme alpine climbing and rock climbing. And so from, um, and left the church, but not my faith. And, uh, and that led me to, uh, to actually cut it back to faith, but in a circuitous, circuitous way where, uh, I ended up in the Alps, um, climbing and came to the, sort of the end of my climbing career, uh, a summer when there were, uh, all these people dying on these crazy routes that we were, everyone was trying to climb these extreme alpine climbs. And I was right in the midst of all that, uh, thinking I was going to be a career sort of alpine climber and a guide. And that was my future. And when I felt this strong call to, uh, to just walk through, um, Italy and to go to Israel and to study Hebrew and just to kind of, learn i guess about the roots of, of my faith and so i left i left uh you know left chamonix france and took off on foot and i ended up on a key on in israel and the only way that i could uh, afford to be there because i didn't have any money was to be on a kibbutz where you you're you're treated like i mean i came in as if i was an immigrant so i had to be jewish to be on the kibbutz and i told them i was jewish based on galatians through faith in christ we're all children of abraham <laughs> And I ended up, and I looked Jewish enough. Um, I had long curly hair and and I was all, um, anyway, I fit the part in a way. And so there I was on this kibbutz and there was a, 
but I was seeking my own uh, way forward in my faith. I was reading the Bible and praying and in that space of just being a seeker. And I had a Cuban fellow Cuban, like uh, kibbutz Nick, who was uh, there trying to, I guess, explore his Jewish identity. And he saw me reading my Bible and told me, you know, how can you waste your time with this, you know, this crap, you know, like, how could there be a God after, you know, after what, after, you know, Auschwitz and, and Dachau and, you know, World War II. And, and I was like, yeah, for sure, man, that's, it's brutal. It's like, I'd just been to the concentration camps in uh, Dachau, Germany. I just come from there and I, I was a cell European studies uh, student at a university. And, and so I was, I'd been studying World War II and I'd been reading Elie Wiesel and, and I was like, yeah, well, you know, I said, have you ever read the Torah to this guy? And he said, well, I wouldn't waste my time on it. It's just a bunch of BS, you know? And I said, well, if you're, and, and I, and I have no respect for you, he said, and I said, well, I can't take you very seriously because if you're just rejecting what you haven't even read and the sacred writings of our people, you know, and so why don't, why don't we read it together? And if it, and if it's a bunch of BS and I agree, then I'll throw it away too. But if it's meaningful, then that'll be cool for you and for me. And so he was like, okay. So uh, we started reading together and uh, we'd read every day in the, in the orange groves of the kibbutz and, this guy ended up becoming a believer in God, but also he educated me about Latin America because he, his dad was one of Castro's uh, comandantes with, along with Che Guevara and had, uh, you know, had been part of the Cuban revolution. And so he and his father were currently living, then living in Miami and funding revolutionary movements in Latin America. So he knew about Latin America from a really unique angle. So he started it kind of talking to me all about U.S. intervention in Central America. And uh, and so I did, without knowing it, that was kind of the beginning of my calling. I, I suddenly had this huge interest beginning to grow about Latin America. The Sandinista revolution was happening. It was like 1978. And uh, so when I returned home, I changed my major to Latin American studies and then took a year of studies and then took off hitchhiking and walking uh, through Central America. But anyway, that's another another part of the journey. When, when did you and Gracie marry? Well, it was in the middle of that trip. Um, I was traveling, and I ended up in this war zone in Guatemala, 1978. Or no, it was 1980, actually. And uh, there was a civil war happening, and I had all these language teachers who were um, mostly urban guerrilla activists, you know, sort of underground, and they were teaching Spanish to, you know, people like me coming in. And it was a very tense environment. And I was uh, there to kind of let my theology be changed from exposure to the poor. And uh, I've been reading liberation theology a lot. I got kind of turned on to that in, in Europe on my trip and, you know, and, and had been challenged by uh, by the assertions that context affects our interpretation so you know being a westerner being an american reading the bible in places of privilege um liberation theology was saying you know western theology needed to almost like be born again born from below 
And uh, that began to happen to me. And so suddenly my life became all clarified about what I wanted to do with my life. And I felt called to work with poor in, in Central America. So I called Gracie and said, hey, uh, would you like to marry me? And she was 21. I was I called her on my 23rd birthday and she agreed to fly down there and marry me. But I decided I better go up and uh, too complicated to have my whole family come down there. And so I flew up. We got married and a week after the wedding, we were back in Guatemala. And then, oh, and then that uh, led to us working in Honduras all through our all through the 80s and through our 20s. Okay. Well, reading scripture has been integral to all of your ministry. And you have kind of been a student of different ways of reading scripture. Um, and and um, so kind of talk a little bit about what, what you gain from each type of reading, each way of reading scripture. Well, I think um, the whole liberation theology paradigm is that um, we need to let the context of sort of uh, like the marginalized people, the poor and the oppressed af affect us. And, uh, and if we really come into a place of solidarity and we're, we're reading alongside people, letting their, uh, their condition affect us because we're an act of solidarity, that's going to change the way we read the Bible, which tr is true. It's, it's, I, I experienced that. I've experienced that many different times. And so I think I, I for years, uh, that, that liberatory reading of the Bible where context, you know, you're reading it in a dialogical way with, uh, you know, with people who aren't necessarily even believers. I mean, what happened is I, I, I went to Honduras not uh, thinking I was myself as a missionary, but wanting to just serve people at their point of need which was uh, they needed to improve their production of corn and beans. So we, we started out as just an agricultural, like sustainable farming ministry, but then got asked by the people to, to lead a Bible study, which uh, I had never done. And it was in reading the Bible in the fields with these peasants, most of whom were illiterate, that I kind of discovered how much, uh, you know, uh, I love to do that. Uh, most of the people, they saw the Bible almost like a, you know, like a machine gun or a, a big club because they, they were used to just being beaten, beaten up by the Bible, you know, or with the Bible from the priests and the Pentecostal pastors. And so you pull out a Bible and it'd be like people would be like a dog that was ready to be kicked. They just, you know, uh, lurk off and hide behind a tree. And so I realized people had the super negative image of God. And so uh, that needed to be addressed, right? I, I, uh, I saw that um, they also had a way of reading that assumed that the Bible was all about behavior modification and, and, um, and about threats that if you don't change your way of living, you're going to go to hell and you're going to be permanently excluded and, and the sin separated people from God and, so I, my way of reading got affected by just, uh, I guess, how deeply affected I was by the people's oppressive images of God that I could see needed to be challenged. 
So and then there were people who were fellow journeyers, uh, people like uh, Carlos Mesters, who is a, a Dutch priest in, in Brazil, who's written a lot about uh, liberatory reading of the Bible, uh, Gerald West, his context of Academy of the Poor, those approaches or Ernesto Cardinal, the gospel of Solentinami, those really affected me in a positive way. Uh, but then it was in the midst of all that, that we decided to actually study in um, theology officially. So we moved to France and then um, kind of became, um, I guess, trained up by more academic and uh, academic students or professors, you know, who, you know, we learned Greek and Hebrew and, and, learned how to to read. Uh, I remember my professor, Daniel Lise, um, I'd written an article about land reform in the Bible or something. And he read it prior to my studies. And he said, you know, you are like David uh, before Goliath. But what you don't have are the five smooth stones. And here we will help you with those five smooth stones. And then it will be a different way of approaching uh, the questions that you're trying to approach about land reform or, or anything else, right? And so it was like, wow, that was really true. Like I, I was like, uh, I didn't really have the tools that I needed. And so I, I saw that uh, an academic, you know, um, more scientific approach to the scriptures uh, was also super important and so we learned how to read you know historical critical narrative um, you know uh, grammatical you know like studying the the, the details of a language uh, textual criticism uh, psychoanalytic reading uh, f feminist readings i was exposed to all those approaches and found them super useful too what about lexio divina in lexio divina um some of our uh, my teachers were also real contemplatives, like Daniel Bourget. He was the guy that I did my master's thesis with and my PhD, and has written extensively on um, kind of more contemplative reading of the Bible, but in a way that is also scientifically informed. You know, I mean, like careful reading based on the on the Hebrew and the Greek or whatever. So I, uh, but yeah, Lexio Divina, like prayer, pr praying the text and letting um, the Holy Spirit really guide the process as well is important and part of my practice. Okay. Well, you've, you've written what, four books now? Is that right? Uh, I think a few more than that, but I have one on the Septuagint of Isaiah, uh, okay. theology of Isaiah, according to the Septuagint. Okay. Uh, Cause I remember uh, you saying that there was a book you were going to come out with on addressing the, the difficult passages. Yeah, I haven't read, read that, written that one yet, but I, I, I have one I want to write on um, reading, tr listening for good news in tra tra traumatic or traumatizing texts. Okay. Or toxic texts. Okay. But you, you started out with uh, reading the Bible with the damned. Reading the Bible uh, with the damned. And what were you wanting to do in that one? What was your kind of goal in that book? Well, after returning from France, we felt called to move up an hour north of Seattle and to start a ministry with immigrant workers from Mexico, you know, mostly undocumented immigrant workers. And at that point, 28 years ago, I was asked to be chaplain of the jail, of the Spanish speakers in the jail. And um, 
there in the jail, I, I that's where I began to uh, meet all these, you know, like second generation immigrants who were gang members and in for drive-by shootings and, and also first generation immigrants. And a lot of them had these same negative images of God that the campesinos, the peasants in Honduras and El Salvador had. And so I began reading um, with them and then I became chaplain to the whole jail. So then I was reading with native people and white and black folk and, you know, and just getting to know the, the scene in my own like county here. And that, uh, that was super uh, life transforming. It was like, almost like starting from, you know, being a baby again and uh, learning uh, about the lives of, of the, you know, of the rural poor and just the addicted and, and people that had gone through the prison system. And so out of that, um, you know, I, I wrote this book, Reading the Bible with the Damned. Like, it's all about how you would find good news in the Bible if you assume that, you know, God was, uh, I mean, that you were you were hopelessly uh, unchangeable and, um, and you were condemned to, you know, to exclusion to maybe like death or, or damnation, right? So a lot of the people we, we work with are people that maybe wouldn't have had any hope uh, because they'd gotten that message that sin separates us from God, which I think is a, a really false, um, false theology, which I've countered, you know, my whole life. You know, that's kind of a dominant mindset that sin separates us from God. It's an assumption that most people have in the church all over the world. And not just Christians, Muslims think of the, God that way. and Hindus think of God that way. Um, so, but in scripture, it's, it's, it's just never, it's not really, it's not, it's not the case. I mean, the woman and the man, they sin and they're in the garden and they're hiding and God goes walking in the garden, looking for him, you know, Cain outside the garden. Um, some people would say, well, being cast out of the garden is cast out, being cast out of the presence of God. But that's where Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice to God. And then when Cain gets angry, because Abel's sacrifice is chosen, God's right there. Cain, why are you angry? And so that idea that God is present to help us, even when we're out of, you know, in a bad way, you know, prior to the murder of Abel and afterward, you know, Cain's like, God comes to Cain after he's killed his brother. Where's your brother? So this idea that sin separates God from us because God's too holy is such a destructive lie. Um, that the enemy would like everyone to believe. And what I've discovered talking to people is that almost everybody has experiences of, of God coming and speaking to them right in the middle of a crime or even right after a crime. And so the idea that God is a friend of sinners like we see in Jesus, I mean, that that didn't just start with Jesus because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What about the Christian Manifesto? New Christian Manifesto. What we, what more did you want to say after the first book that, that you wanted to say in the manifesto? You know, um, about 18 years ago, we, my wife and I kind of like were ready to almost quit, I guess, because we felt like our gospel was, um, was just feeling like very weak medicine. You know, we had a lot of experience, a lot of education, but it just felt like we were seeing people, um, relapse, reoffend, 
kill, be killed. And it felt like our gospel wasn't going deep enough. And we were like, Jesus, like, why aren't we seeing, you know, the Gerasene demoniacs of our county um, get liberated? And, you know, the, the, the guy who's 38 years by the pool of Bethesda, you know, why aren't we, you know, we're not seeing healing and, and real deep freedom from some of the really horrible drugs. It was like meth was on the rise at that time. And uh, I had a little brother that had been to this charismatic renewal kind of places like in Florida and in my view, kind of really crazy places that I wanted nothing to do with. And he was saying, well, you know, hey, Bob, um, you know, have you ever been to this uh, revival in Toronto or, you know, wherever it was? And I was like, no, no, thanks, Pete. Not interested. And it was like, uh, finally, you know, um, he kind of convinced us to go to this uh, place in Toronto where there was this uh, charismatic revival kind of thing supposedly happening. And so we, I guess, I, I, I thought it would be good for my wife because she was like really burnt out. And she's very discerning, so kind of sent her ahead of me to check it out. And and so that led to this, uh, a real deep experience of the Holy Spirit that was very surprising to her and, and then, then to me as well, which uh, kind of brought us into a whole other season of our ministry and of our lives. And so New Christian Manifesto was me trying to kind of make sense of my faith afresh um, in the light of of an experience of the Holy Spirit that sort of launched us into, you know, into praying with more expectancy that Jesus can heal. Well, you, you, in, in reading with the dam, uh, you, you challenge literalism, uh, but you kind of seem to embrace a version of that. Um, once you've had your experience in Toronto, uh, your charismatic experience by, you know, the, the casting out of the demons, the raising of the dead, uh, the healing kind of thing. So kind of uh, clarify for us uh, the literalism issue. Well, I mean, there's, I guess there's dangers to certain kinds of literalism if we, if we don't interpret scripture uh, in its context, you know, um, like I've had people, uh, the jail call me and say, Hey, there's somebody trying to pluck their eye out um, or cut their hand off, you know, cause they were reading about how if your hand causes you to sin, you know, cut it off. And there's a kind of literalism there that I definitely am really troubled by. <laughs> and, um, but actually if you, you know, I, I remember talking to this person who had killed her husband and shot him cause he was beating her up and she was trying to cut her hand off. And uh, I said, well, was it your hand that pulled it, that decided to shoot your husband? And she was like, no, I, I just reacted because I was afraid. And um, so where did that come from? And, and it, so your hand, was your hand the one that caused you to kill your, 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 your husband? She was like, no, it actually didn't. It was like more like I just, I just chose to do it out of survival. And I said, so your hand didn't cause you to sin. It was uh, <laughs> anyway. That seemed to work. <laughs> it, um, but anyway, yeah, literalism. I, You know, Jesus says in Matthew 28, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Um, so as you go, make disciples, right? Teaching them, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we do that. Most churches, even churches that are not fundamentalist churches, like most mainline churches, Catholic Church, we all baptize because Jesus, uh, I mean, he, he himself was baptized. And then he, he tells us, commands us to baptize, right? Um, and then he goes on to say, teaching them to observe or to put into practice everything I've commanded you. Okay. Um, okay. Well, what has he commanded us? And so I, I got thinking about that, you know, and the first thing he commands us in Matthew's gospel, first thing he, is where there's an imperative is uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's the first thing. So most Christians would be in agreement that that's important. Uh, mainline people, liberals even, right? Conservatives, definitely. Second one, follow me and I will make you become fishers of people. Okay, we're in agreement with that. Most of us, right? Okay. Love your enemies. Okay. Um, some people don't seem to realize that's in that's one of Jesus's teachings. You know, a lot of Christians in our country that believe that there's this just war theory, which I think is a major heresy myself. I don't see how we can embrace that in the light of Jesus's teachings. But I guess it does mean that we're going to like take his teachings somewhat literally rather than just saying, oh, well, he didn't mean, you know, loving your enemy can mean killing them and putting them out of their misery or whatever. Like, I would say that's a destructive symbolic reading of Jesus's teaching about loving your enemies, right? So like then Jesus goes on to say, um, bless those who persecute you. Okay, like the whole Anabaptist tradition is all about enemy love, right? And I, I think it's it has so much to contribute to the body of Christ. And in America, we need it big time. But then we go on. Jesus says, heal the sick, you know, um, cast out the demons, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Okay, well. I think in the church, there's like a selective dispensationalism. You know, the, the Anabaptists are uncomfortable with, oftentimes with, you know, at least the liberal Mennonite friends of mine, they're a little bit wary of like being literal about healing the sick, but they they definitely want to be literal about loving enemies and being peacemakers, right? But I think we need to try to take everything Jesus commanded and try to make sense of it. And if it makes us uncomfortable, Rather than justifying not engaging in it, maybe we need to ask why we're so uncomfortable and and try to step forward into the deeper practice of, of the gospel. So that's what I've tried to do. And it's and it's and I've needed to do it. I've uh, you know, we run into people who who have been shot, who've been stabbed, who've got hepatitis C, who've got serious mental health problems and psychiatry hasn't helped them enough you know um they've got chronic illness um people need prayer and so um you know we pray and surprise surprise we've been seeing the people get healed of stuff so that makes you kind of want to do more of that well in your in your book uh one of your books you say um there is an urgent need today to consider and reconsider 
both what we can expect to see of God's kingdom here on earth and our part in its advent. Kind of explain that, talk about that for us. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the main things Jesus is challenging in all the Gospels is unbelief. And uh, we elevate unbelief as a value, you know, because we we see it as um, having intellectual integrity. And uh, in France, where we studied, there's a saying, you know, il faut tout méfier. Everything has to be distrusted. That's like an academic principle, right? And I, I embrace that to some extent. Okay, but then there's a certain point where you need to just step out and trust, okay, that God is good, that, um, okay, that seeking first the kingdom will lead to an outcome like Jesus describes, right, in Matthew 6, 33, that we don't need to be anxious about what we eat, drink, or put on. And so uh, the only way to really know whether whether Jesus's teachings are true is to step out and practice them. And if, if all we're going to do is just, you know, kind of analyze them and decide whether they're legit or not and never really taste and see, we're never going to experience the, the bigness, you know, of, um, of Jesus's, uh, what Jesus says, you know, greater things than I do, you will do because I go to the father. I mean, we've seen some beautiful things where God's healed people that, um, or myself included, I've received healing. I had chronic asthma. I had two, two ladies, uh, two Swedish women in the UK who prayed for me at a worship service. And that was like 10 years ago. I've had no more asthma. I mean, wow, anyone who's got asthma would love to have that happen instead of just being dependent upon your puffer. I've seen people we've prayed for be healed of COPD where they had only 15% long use just through one prayer time praying for them. I've seen people, um, you know, with chronic pain, debilitating pain from gunshot wound, um, completely healed. And now they can do like hundreds of pushups a day. And they're off in the prison system doing a lot of years, but, but they're believers and they got healed. Like, I mean, I think the way we're going to, our faith is going to be expanded is by letting uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, yielding to the Spirit's um, direction and, and letting our imaginations be inspired by the, by the, by the ministry of Jesus in the gospels and uh, by Paul's ministry in the, in the, in the epistles, you know, um, but we've got to launch out and go for it. We had a woman in Moza in, in Zimbabwe who went through one of our trainings and uh, the last day of this five day training, she asked for prayer because she said she's a pastor, but she couldn't read or write. And we assumed it was because her eyes were, had a problem. So we said, oh yeah, well, yeah, we can pray. But I can't say we had a lot of faith. Um, and we just thought we were praying for her eyes. And so uh, we prayed uh, with all of our the faith that we could muster. And we find out um, a couple weeks later that um, she had not been able to read or write because she'd never been to school. But that she, subsequent to the prayer, um, was able to read. And we were like, no way. That's, are you sure? I mean... Wasn't it her eyes that were 
maybe healed. I mean, that's that was a big enough of a miracle to that stretched our faith already. But they were saying, no, um, no, she actually can now read. We are like, no, I, I can't accept that. I mean, you know, she, that happens through literacy training, you know, and they were like, what's wrong? You know, Bob and Gracie, don't you guys, don't you guys believe that God can do that? And we were like, no, I don't think we do. But wow, are you kidding? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, but we've since seen pictures of her graduation from Bible, you know, from Bible school and, you know, a couple of years later. And she's like, that's the way, that's her testimony. But that's a stretch for me, for sure. One of the things that I liked uh, that you said, it was in the context of when you were in, in Honduras, but it seems to apply uh, to other contexts, is that um, where you speak of learning uh, what good news needs to include in order to turn the hearts of someone. Um, kind of talk about what that is, you know, is that, and it, I guess it varies with each context, uh, what good news needs to include for Hondurans is different from what good news needs to include for inmates, uh, or for migrant workers in order to turn their hearts. Yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting how in every one of Jesus's encounters you have, uh, none of them are the same, you know, and I think we tend to want to extract a message that we call good news. It's a one size fits all, you know, message. And, and it, people, we all need to hear a, a different slant on, on things or we need to hear, you know, a word that, uh, that turns our heart, you know, think about the woman caught, uh, um, caught in adultery, you know, um, she's brought before Jesus and, and, you know, um, Jesus speaks a word, you know, the one is without sin, let that person cast the first stone, right? That was, a, that was a word that got people's focus off of the woman and onto their own hearts, right? And, uh, and then people went away, the oldest, beginning with the oldest down to the youngest. And, and then what does Jesus say, you know, um, are, where are those who condemn you? You know, no one, Lord, or no one, sir. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I mean, that's a word that that woman needed to hear, right? Um, and it may not have been a word that would mean anything to me right now. Okay. Um, I think uh, a lot of times we we tend to, we, we use like the Dam Damascus Road um, story as like a prototype conversion or the Nicodemus, you know, unless a person is born again, they can't see the kingdom of heaven. But both of those are the conversions of Pharisees, right? Uh, Paul was a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So those models of conversion are those, uh, those texts that are used, used by Christians. I mean, they're beautiful stories, but those were the those were those were experiences that that religious uh, Pharisees who were caught in a legalistic system. Uh, those those are the stories conversion stories of of insiders religious insiders. Whereas uh, where do we go if we're looking for a conversion story of somebody who's 
you know, who's been a sinner, who's, who's been accused, who's been excluded, you know, there, what, what happens to them is different. You know, um, the man who's at Bethesda pool, who's been 38 years waiting for the waters to be stirred so that he can get in there, but he, there's always someone that gets to gets into the waters first. The good news for him is that Jesus comes to where that guy is and, um, and respects him, you know, uh, do you want to be well? And the guy says, well, there's nobody to take me to the pool. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, I'll take you there. Let's, let's go. Angel, do your thing. And uh, what Jesus does is he, he just turns to the guy and says, you get up and take up your pallet and walk. Like Jesus believes in the guy who tended to think that his healing was dependent upon somebody being there who was never there. You know, maybe that guy needed to be believed in. And, uh, and it's just like every one of the gospel accounts should be read to kind of cultivate an awareness that, that we need to be really um, listening to the Holy Spirit when we're talking to someone, um, you know, when we're sharing faith with someone, because everybody, everybody needs something that's almost like tailor-made for them, I think. And the Holy Spirit knows how to, how to help us and give us that tailor-made you know, um, word or interpretation, whatever it might be, that could help bring someone over the line. Well, you've been working uh, with marginalized people for a long time, uh, but you make the statement that um, marginalized folks and the and mainstream folks uh, need each other. Kind of develop that, explain that. I mean, I think, I think people who are um, really down and out, often they are just so willing to just share their lives and in an uncensored way, they'll just tell you kind of what, where they're at. And uh, church people tend to hide and present their, our best selves. And, uh, and so we often are alienated from one another because we just can't. We know that if, if, if we're transparent, you know, we're going to be rejected or gossiped about. And, and it's probably true. So, you know, um, when you're in a setting where you can just be real, that is liberating for, for you as a, as a person that's coming in, into that place. Um, that's one of the ways that we need people and also just, uh, People who are um, down and out are desperate. You know, they they're willing to to risks a lot more, and that um, I think that's inspiring. You know, to us. You know, um, and I think uh, because they're willing to risk more and they're and they're more humble, often they see God come through for them in ways that. Um, are more extreme and um, and that can awaken our faith and we need our faith awakened. Um, so those are some examples, I guess. Um, I mean, I've received a lot of grace from the prisoners that I work with where, where they show a lot of love and appreciation to me and value me. 
in, um, in ways that I, I, I've, I've rarely experienced outside of those settings. Or I experienced less outside of those settings. And, uh, and I've been evangelized by the way uh, people on the margins interpret the Bible. Because, uh, because they, are, they're, they're, they need every reason possible to hope that they can find. And often they they interpret the Bible in ways that are just fresh and that are and that are possible. And that I mean, I'm often taking notes from what people say in my Bible studies because it's just like, wow, I've never heard any German scholar or British scholar or anybody, and I've never thought that thought. But wow, that's that's right on. That's that's completely possible and true. In fact, that's that's probably the true the truest and deepest meaning of that text. So my my eyes have been open to the Bible in a fresh way through reading with people who aren't even Christians yet. Um, you have been uh, able and worked toward uh, bringing kind of a unity to a fragmented Christianity. Um, you kind of talk about uh, essentially three different groups, uh, the evangelical group, uh, the kind of liberal mainstream group uh, and the charismatic uh, group. And, and as I understand you, and you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding, um, that, that the unity comes in the recognition that each group has something to offer by being able to reach a group of people the other two aren't. Am I understanding you right on that? Yeah, I mean, I think... We need one another. I don't know that I'm seeing as much unity as I'd like to see at all. I mean, like things are about as divided as they've ever been with the in the current political climate of the United States, and uh, it's it grieves me. Um, I think one of the things that I've seen um, that's a division that I think I'm seeing. I, I see with some communities the healing of this division. Like you have the some of the charismatic people that are really strong on being a child of God, you know, being, um, having a relationship with the father and knowing themselves as a daughter, as a son and having authority because we're rooted in God's love. Okay. But often those people, maybe they view the father as sort of a, like uncle Sam, almost like a white man in the sky. And they, they lack the, um, the, the awareness, at least, the white charismatic communities tends to lack that times that awareness that, um, you know, that God is, uh, you know, God is not a white, God is not a white man. Um, you know, um, I mean, if we're all made in the image of God, then, then all of us reflect God's image regard, you know, all through all of our racial differences. Right. And, and God is not a gendered male. Okay, like, uh, so, um, you know, so often the charismatic world uh, has simplistic ways of, of presenting the father that are very offensive to women and to, and to just thinking people everywhere. And, uh, and then also there's a heavy handedness about in terms of the way that people exercise authority, where people think of law enforcement and the military as as legitimate Christian expressions of authority. And um, when they're not, 
and and uh, they have nothing to do with the authority of Jesus. And so a lot of progressives and liberals have just said, I want nothing to do with any of that charismatic authority. Like I was one of those. I, I, I didn't want to have any authority and power if that's what it looked like. It's just sending troops to Iraq and, you know, Afghanistan and anywhere, Ukraine, you know, weapons to Ukraine, weapons, you know, like anywhere, uh, borders to keep people out, you know, the, the use of power and authority like that. And the charismatic, charismatic church, white evangelicals and charismatics have been guilty of excesses and simplistic understandings of their authority because they don't see their identity as a child of God as separate from their national identity and their racial ethnic identities. So, but the progressive liberal or even radical Christian, red letter Christian type people who among, among whom I've been most of my life, we say, well, it's about the ministry of Jesus and his teachings and the Beatitudes and loving enemies and being a friend of sinners and being inclusive of the outsiders and not being about condemnation and being about grace. And we've got to do the works of Jesus and Jesus did it outside um, in the world. Not he didn't establish churches and he was humble and he he showed his glory on the cross. And it's true. OK, but um, that side of the church um, has fallen into kind of a legalism around. You know, um, progressive agendas and, and issues and a, uh, maybe a literalism around Jesus's teachings where it just becomes a new Phariseeism where we've got to just live a simple life and have a particular ideology that is in alignment with the Beatitudes. And and when there's no authority, because we, we haven't wanted the authority. So I see God wanting us to be sons and daughters of the Father in a um, thoughtfully informed way where we actually have spiritual authority through the Holy Spirit and disciples of Jesus. So discipleship and identity as a son and daughter of the father need to come together. And because um, Jesus does everything he does as a son who is beloved. Right. And, uh, and we need to have word and um, spirit and justice brought together because they belong together and not have the word people off doing their thing and not caring about social justice and or not caring about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and spirit people doing their thing without caring about social justice and without caring about careful scripture reading. Those worlds, word, spirit, and street, we, we see coming together in different places around the world. And that's what we're trying to promote. And also an understanding of, of prophecy that includes the charismatic type prophecy of, of, of speaking into people's lives, words of destiny and hope and getting revelatory, uh, you know, revelation from the spirit together with social justice advocacy and uh, speaking truth to power and whistleblowing and exposure of injustices. That's part of the prophetic too. And those belong together and they've been separated. So I, I feel called to a ministry of reconciliation where these parts of, of our faith witness that have been cut apart and practiced without the other, without dialogue with the other camps, you know, uh, the contemplative, the academic, the social justice, the spirit filled, 
of worship. All that needs to be together. Well, you and Gracie have been active for 40 years or more uh, in this, this amazing, uh, innovative, creative ministry. Uh, what have you learned as a kind of a final question for us? Well, I think I'm learning all the time, more and more. And uh, I think uh, right now we're having a lot of fun because uh, our church, our faith community, Genoa has, uh, we've been at it for 28 years in our county here. And I feel like we're really starting to see fruit uh, after all those years, you know, because we've been building trust, you know, through chaplaincy in the jail in the prison and and uh our focus has been like you know matthew and jesus uh when jesus sends out the 12 and the 70 in luke and in matthew 10 as well um he he doesn't send them out to plant churches right he sends them out as guests not as hosts and uh one of the things i'm learning is that uh, we need to be vulnerable guests rather than people who are just always seeing ourselves as hosting. And if we're going out to where people are, um, our ministry is kind of rooted in that Luke 15, you know, seeking after the lost sheep until we find them. Um, but finding them involves like receiving the hospitality from them and coming into their territory and building trust. And uh, that's one of the things we're learning is that that you know, that pays off in the end because uh, it is important to gather people too. Like I believe in that, you know, we gather people numerous times a week and, you know, um, but the outward, you know, going out and in vulnerability without, you know, money, without, I think we've been too caught up in just building nonprofits and having big budgets and, just about power. We've been too much about power and not enough about just going out in, um, like Jesus sent people out without a bunch of, you know, without even sandals and, or a staff and without any money and um, going out dependent upon, you know, the people and the spirit. That's one thing I'm learning. Okay. And the other thing I'm learning is that um, we need to renounce our uh, interests of our own racial, ethnic, uh, national identity. A Christian who's been baptized is part of a part of the community of heaven. Um, and we're not about the interests of our nation. And so we're going to, um, we need to not, um, fall into thinking that we have some role to defend our boundaries, our borders. And, you know, we're about, um, a global, you know, a borderless, you know, like uh, we're part of of the future of, of where everything's headed and we mustn't be stuck in um, in the in the entrapments of thinking that we have to be about our the interests of our clan or our denomination or, our, you know, our nation, our race. We've got to be ready to go wherever we're wherever God would send us and be about the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven, not on earth as it is in the United States or according to some democracy, some notion of democracy that we think is superior to some other notion of governance. 
So that's the other thing I'm learning. Like I have a Russian Bible study every Tuesday night. Tonight I got one with a bunch of guys that are recovery in recovery out of prison that are in a city, you know, four hours from Ukraine. And these guys, you know, uh, they don't need to be, you know, uh, I mean, they, I, could, I would have no authority with them if I was just on a big uh, anti-Russia kick. I've got a, we've got to make distinctions between, between human beings and govern governments and love, love people be about people. Well, thank you for allowing God to work in with and through you uh, and for uh, what you're doing uh, in such an innovative and creative way uh, with the Terra Nueva and the People's Seminary. Uh, those are amazing uh, things that are making not just people uh, experience God, uh, more fully in a transformative way, but uh, you're making the world better uh, as you do it. So may God's blessings be on all yet <laughs> as you continue to move forward. Well, thanks. I mean, it's about multiplication, right? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So we're just trying to do the little, the little that we can do with what the, li the life is that we have. And may God bless all of you to go for it wherever you are in Jesus name. Well, thank you, Bob. Well, you are listening to practicing gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called father, let your kingdom come, which is found on the Porter's gate worship project work songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's gate worship project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Say the words from my mouth.